Before we turn our attention to our study this morning, let's pray and ask that God would be with us and that he would bless uh, us as we look at his word. Pray with me, would you? Father, we come to you this morning uh, just humbled. There, there is one name under heaven given to us as men whereby we must be saved, and that is the same uh, name that kings bow low before. That is the same name that the dead are raised by. That is the same name who has been our great conqueror and will always be our great conqueror, just as we sang this morning. And so, Lord, because you are the one that is worthy of all of our worship, because everything that has breath is to praise the Lord, we come to you this morning uh, humbly. We come to you this morning in adoration. and We bow low before your throne and ask that we would, your sheep, be fed by your word. Lord, thank you that you haven't left us here this side of eternity without clear instruction. Thank you that you have inscripturated your word, that it has been passed down through the generations, that it is inerrant, it's without error, it's authoritative from beginning to end. It is sufficient for everything that pertains to life and godliness in our lives. And so because of that, Lord, we, uh, we look to it uh, and we look to it alone. Lord, in everything that we do this morning, help us to please and honor and bring glory to your son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. That's our text for this morning. The sermon title is Audience of One. I think for probably all of us without exception, that's a challenge at times, to live for an audience of one. We are by nature, by our sinful nature, people pleasers. We learned last week that none of us None of us measure up to God's standard. That's how Jesus concluded chapter 5 of Matthew's gospel. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We know that none of us meet the standard. None of us rise to the occasion. We all miss the mark. But we also learn that if we're true believers, if we come to saving faith in Christ alone, that something of the character of the kingdom, something of the character of Christ will become evident in our lives. Living things grow. If you want to know, or if you want a good indication of whether or not you've come to saving faith in Christ, a good question to ask yourself is, am I growing? Am I growing in Christ's likeness? Is my heart growing in a sensitivity towards sin? Am I beholding Jesus like I've never beheld him before? Do I see the cross as being being my only hope, whereas once I saw my own achievement as being my only hope? Uh, hopefully we should see, actually I shouldn't say hopefully, it is imperative that we must see marks of Christian growth in our lives if we've come to true saving faith in Christ. We'll see something of the Beatitudes uh, become apparent or become evident in our lives. That of spiritual poverty, humility, a spiritual hunger and a spiritual thirst. Uh, We'll be showing others mercy because we've been shown mercy. We'll be peacemakers. And along with this, Uh, will come a growth in what Jesus refers to as a practical holiness or a practical righteousness. The righteousness of Christ will be evident in our lives. Anger, adulterous thoughts, insincere talk, and retaliation will be uh, progressively diminishing in our lives as we're progressively sanctified through the Christian life. While this is the way that God has designed our spiritual growth to take place, This, friends, let me submit to you, is precisely where the danger of the Christian life lies. 
Here's what I mean by that. Once you and I begin to live out the righteousness of God, once we're flying spiritually, so to speak, once we're living a life that is marked by good deeds, it is very easy for us to then begin to practice our righteousness to be seen by men instead of to honor and to praise and to worship and to exalt and to glorify God and God alone. And this is the issue that Jesus is going to put his finger on here in our hearts over the next few weeks as we continue in our study here. The issue is that of our motives. Why do you do the things that you do? God is just as concerned, I might even say more concerned, with the why behind our actions as he is with the what of our actions. Why do you do the things that you do? What motivates you? You see, God sees us as no one else sees us. Namely, he sees our heart. The writer of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that the the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. hear, Hear this, friends. It discerns the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. God is concerned with what you do. Make no mistake about that. But I would submit to you that God is potentially more concerned with the why. Why do you do what you do? What is motivating you? What is spurring you on? We'll see in our text this morning that the righteousness of the Pharisees was by and large insincere and it was dishonest. And our righteousness can at times be insincere and dishonest. I've said it before, and it bears repeating, that there is a little Pharisee that lives in every single one of our hearts without exception. So lest we poke fun at the Pharisees, lest we look at them as being poor examples, we need to remind ourselves that we look more like them than we do look dislike them. Why do we do the things that we do? You see, the Pharisees, we'll see in our text here, they were more interested in the applause of men than they were in the reward of God. And so in chapter 6 here, where we've turned this morning, we'll see Jesus apply a spiritual litmus test, so to speak, to four different areas of our spiritual worship and our spiritual service. We'll see Jesus applying this spiritual litmus test to first our praying, or our giving rather, second, next week to our praying, third to our fasting, and then fourthly to our use of God's resources, to our use of wealth. So the question we want to be asking ourselves is, what motivates us? Why do we do what we do? Are we doing it to garner the approval and the acceptance and the eye of men, the applause of man? Or do we do what we do because we're motivated by the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ? That's the litmus test. Jesus will apply it to four areas of our worship and service over the next few weeks. Let me encourage you to stand this morning if you have the ability as we read our text together. Matthew is recording Jesus' words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. This is what he says. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret 
will reward you. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Three points on your outline this morning. Let me give them to you in advance. Number one, if you're taking notes, would encourage you to do so is this. Be on guard. Be on guard. I know it sounds like a simple platitude. I'll explain what I mean by that, but be on guard. Number two, be quiet. Be quiet. And then third and last, be self-forgetful. Be self-forgetful. Be on guard, be quiet, and be self-forgetful. Let's look at number one together. Be on guard. Let me encourage you to turn your attention to your Bibles there. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. Here's the operative phrase here. In order to be seen by them, for then, or as a result, or consequently, you will have no reward, Jesus says, from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, beware. Beware. The Greek verb there means to Hold your mind on the matter. We might say, pay attention, be cautious, give heed to. Jesus is giving us just as much a command here in this single word as he is giving us a solemn warning. A warning that we exercise caution when we practice our righteousness. And the reason behind that is because our sinful flesh, our sinful flesh is so quick to exploit an opportunity to draw attention to ourselves. We love the praise of men. We are approval junkies at times. That is not our grand narrative. That that does not characterize me in whole as a believer. I'm a son of the risen God. You're a daughter of the risen king if you know Christ. But at times we slip into this vein of loving the approval of man more than we love the approval of God. That's what Jesus oftentimes took the Pharisees to task over. Is that everything they did was concerned more with the external than it was with the internal. That's why Jesus takes the Pharisees to task in Matthew 23. He calls them whitewashed tombs. He says you look great on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. You wash the outside of the cup, but the inside of of the cup, it's full of greed. And everything unclean. Everything looks prim and proper on the outside. You do what you're supposed to do. You don't do those things that you're not supposed to do. You speak how you're supposed to speak. You act how you're supposed to act. You do those religious duties that are required of you to be seen in public. But the motivation, the heart that drives it all is wrong. Because it's directed at the glory and the honor and the applause and the accolades and the attaboys of man. Rather than at the glory of God alone. Friends, our sinful flesh is so quick. That's why Jesus says, beware, be on guard, take heed, be mindful, be cautious, because our flesh is so quick to pounce on, our flesh is so quick to jump on an opportunity to draw attention to ourselves. When we do things with the motivation that God be glorified, you can rest assured that God will take care that we are duly recognized. Now, it doesn't always take place in this life, but you can take it to the bank. When we do things with the motivation that God and God alone be glorified and honored, God will make sure that we're duly recognized. It doesn't always happen here, but you can be sure. 
When we do those things we do purely for ostentation, when we do those things that we do purely to be seen by others and recognized by others, God can't own that. For he accepts only what is done to himself, or done for himself, rather. Let me say something about our sinful flesh that is so quick to jump on an opportunity to seek approval and attention for ourselves. There is a reality. We all struggle with this. The reality is that desire to feel important, that desire to feel significant, and I would say that God made us that way. God desi- he designed us. He fashioned us. He made us with a built-in desire to feel significant. Now, the question is, the question is, will we seek that significance and affirmation from him and him alone? See, he made us with that desire to feel significant. And he fulfills it in himself. Or will we seek to have that desire for significance and seek to have that desire to feel important met by men. We all want to be thanked. We all want to be noticed. We all want to be recognized for the good that we accomplish. The thought of being utterly anonymous is admirable, but it's extremely difficult to live out. To live anonymous, that's a challenge. That's hard. It's hard not to be recognized. It's hard not to be affirmed. It's hard not to be thanked. Jesus is telling us, you will be thanked. You'll be thanked by your Father if what you do is motivated by His glory alone. It may not be here in this world, but you'll be affirmed. I think the primary principle thought behind Jesus' words here to His followers is this. Who gets the credit for the things you do? Who gets the credit for the things that you do? If you boast about yourself, if you do the things you do for the praise of men, then you get the credit, at least verbally. It's very temporary, it's very fleeting, it lasts only for a moment, but you get the credit. What Jesus is drilling down to here in the text is, what do you have that you weren't given? All your life and breath and being were given to you by God. God gets all the credit. For everything done in and through your life, for all your good deeds, for all your display of righteousness, because of the fact that he has come in and changed your heart and put his spirit in you. Ezekiel 36, 26 even says, and moves you, or God causes us to walk in his ways. So even our producing of righteousness is is of him. He alone is to get the credit a former president, Ronald Reagan, used to have a plaque that sat on his desk, and it read this. It said, there is no limit to how far a person can go if he doesn't care who gets the credit. There's no limit to how far a person can go if he doesn't care who gets the credit. And that sounds great. Sounds like a wonderful quote, but I think Jesus might reword that quote just a little bit. I think Jesus would rewrite it and say this. There's no limit to how far a person can go as long as their only concern is that God gets the credit. As long as their only concern is that God gets the credit and he gets it alone. You see, our sinful nature is so subtle that it can take otherwise good things and pervert them and distort them. That's the subtlety of the sinfulness of our human hearts. The prophet Jeremiah reminds us, does he not, in Jeremiah 17, 9, he says, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Jeremiah writes. 
That's the subtlety of the sinfulness of our human hearts. Jesus is telling us that healthy spirituality is refusing to allow ourselves to think that we've done well just when we've done something that is right. Jesus is telling us that we should refuse to think of ourselves as being Mr. or Mrs. Wonderful when all we've done is what is right. Or all we've done is what is commanded of us. I mean, Jesus says that in the parable of the unworthy servant in Luke chapter 17. He says, does he, the master, thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say this, we are but unworthy servants and we have only done what is our duty. So even when we give, even when we pray, even when we steward our finances well, even when we fast and we do it motivated by the glory of God and God alone, or any other spiritual discipline or act of righteousness which we practice, we must remind ourselves that we're only doing that which has been commanded of us. We're not Mr. Wonderful. We're not Mrs. Wonderful. We're simply being obedient servants. One way to guard against practicing your righteousness to be seen by others is just to remind yourself and to remind myself, I'm just doing what is expected of me. You see, when we practice our righteousness to be seen, we rob ourselves of blessing and we rob God of glory. And God will not give his glory to another. He's a jealous God. He hates people-pleasing. And the reason he hates people-pleasing is because the root of people-pleasing in our hearts is idolatry. It's idolatry. Our desire to people-please, our desire to be seen, thanked, noticed, admired, and at a boy or at a girl is at its root, idolatry. Just as there are two sides to a coin, there's two sides to idolatry. One side involves uh, forsaking of God, and the other side subsequently uh, involves a replacing of God with something cheaper or a lesser substitute. Jeremiah says this very same thing on behalf of God in Jeremiah 2.13. says, For behold, my people, they've committed two sins. First side of the coin... They've forsaken me, the spring of living water. Second side of the coin, they've replaced me with a cheap substitute. They've dug for themselves broken cisterns, cisterns that can not hold water. Just as there are two sides to a coin, there's two sides to idolatry. One always involves forsaking God, and the other involves replacing him with a cheaper or a lesser substitute. And that's exactly what we do when we bow to the idol of people-pleasing. The first side is an overinflated desire for man's approval. And the other side is a fear of rejection or not getting that approval that we so desperately love and want to garner. You see, our actions, they will always, sooner or later, reveal the idols that reside in our hearts. The old Puritans used to speak about our hearts as being an idol factory. And they never shut down. They're pumping out idols 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. That's a part of the tension. That's part of the Romans 7 tension of living in a fallen world. Why do I do the very things that I don't want to do and the very things that I, that I, that I do do are the things that God tells me not to do? Wretched man am I, Paul says. I mean, it's that struggle with the, with, with the new, new heart and the old flesh. But sooner or later... Our actions or our words will reveal the idols that re- reside in our hearts. 
And they will reveal themselves by either our inordinate love for the praise of man or our fear of losing that praise of man. There are many, but what are some of the characteristics of a people pleaser? This is where I would encourage you to grab a copy of Priolo's book. Let me just give you a few that he notes here. What are some of the characteristics of a people pleaser? You can ask yourself, do I, do I fit the bill here? Number one, a people pleaser fears the displeasure of man more than the displeasure of God. That's one side of the coin, right? If we have an inordinate desire for man's approval, then we will fear losing that. And so the question is, do we fear the displeasure of man more than we fear the displeasure of God? That is one of the characteristics of a heart that is too attracted to the approval of man. Secondly, a people pleaser. His speech is designed to entice and flatter others into thinking well of him. Friends, we've got to be careful here. And I think this oftentimes sees itself, and I'm guilty, in fishing for compliments. We want other people to affirm us. We want other people to speak well of us. We want other people, again, to notice us. And so we fish for compliments. The heart's deceitful, above all things, desperately sick, wicked. Who can understand it? Third, a people pleaser, he or she selfishly uses the wisdom and the abilities and the gifts that have been given to him or her for God's glory for their own selfish means. We use what God has given us, what God has graced us with for our own glory, for our own personal benefit instead of God's glory. Fourth, a people pleaser invests more of his or her personal resources in establishing their own honor as compared to establishing the honor of God. How do we use our resources? Are we using them to prop ourselves up? Are we using them to make ourselves look good? Or are we using them to reflect honor upon God? And then fifth, and there are many, many, many more here. But a people pleaser is oftentimes oversensitive to correction, to reproof. They see this as being the disapproval of man. And they're oversensitive to it. Just some characteristics of a people pleaser there. Some, some indicators that we could be more in love with the approval of man than we are in the approval of God. Now, look back at the text here in verse 1. What Jesus says here is beware, that's be on guard, be mindful, be cautious of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Now, can you remember back just a handful of verses ago, back in chapter 5, Verse 16, Jesus says, Let your light shine before all men, so that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And then here in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Be careful of practicing your righteousness. Be careful of practicing your good deeds before other people in order to be seen by them. Now, what in the world is going on here? Well, let me encourage you with the fact that God is not schizophrenic. He hasn't changed his mind. He doesn't know what he's saying. This is not double speak. He's not speaking out of one side of his mouth and then speaking out of the other side of his mouth just a handful of verses later. In Matthew chapter 5, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works. And then here, conceal them lest men see you. Well, how are we to deal with this? One pastor has said it this way. I think this is helpful. He says, show what you're tempted to hide, and hide 
what you're tempted to show. Show what you're tempted to hide and hide what you're tempted to show. In other words, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus is challenging, challenging us to overcome the temptation to cowardice. And then here in our text, he's challenging us to avoid the temptation of vanity. Two totally different things. Let your light shine. Overcome the temptation to cowardice. Let people see God in you, the hope of glory. But here in chapter 6, verse 1, it's the challenge to avoid the temptation of vanity. To love the approval of man more than the approval of God. Jesus says, if we give ourselves to the approval of man more than the approval of God, look at verse 1, he says, you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus' words are absolute. Oftentimes in pre-marriage counseling, I encourage And in marriage counseling, we'll encourage young couples, don't use absolute words. In other words, remove from your vocabulary never and always, because they're never always true. Okay? She always does this, or he always does that, or she never does this. It's like, that's not true. It's not a true statement. It's an absolutizing statement. But friends, look back at the text here. Jesus uses absolute words. He says, anyone who does a good deed so as to be seen by and applauded by others will lose, that's absolute language, lose his or her reward no matter how good and how beneficial the deed is. Let me just give you some illustrations here. That means it's possible for a believer to take a leper's ulcerated limb in his hands and to caress it gently and speak words of comfort yet have no reward from God. That's possible. It's possible to pray for our enemies and to seek to serve our enemies, yet have no reward from God. It's possible to preach like an angel, this is challenging for me here, and yet have no reward from God. Why? Because the motive behind all those actions can be absolutely wrong. And if the motive behind those things is the approval of man, You are the one that gets applauded. You're the one that gets the glory, albeit temporarily. An old song is, I was young in the faith, I can remember, I've not heard it in a long time, was written by, I think it was written by him, but by Clay Cross. The title of the song was, I Surrender All, and I'll never forget one, one lyric of this song. He writes, if the source of my ambition is the treasure that I obtain." If I measure my successes on a scale of earthly gain, if the focus of my vision is the status I attain, then my accomplishments are worthless and my efforts are in vain. That sums up what Jesus is saying here in verse 1. The source of your ambition is the treasure that you obtain. If you measure your successes on a scale of earthly gain, the focus of your vision is just that other people would praise you, then your accomplishments are worthless, and so are mine, and our efforts are in vain. No reward, Jesus says. That's why Jesus says, be on guard. Be vigilant. Stand guard, lest you fall. Number two on your outline is this. Be quiet. Be quiet. Let your eyes find verse two there in your Bible. Jesus says thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, 
as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. For truly I say to you, they have received their reward in full. Now, let's break this apart phrase by phrase here. Jesus says, when you give to the needy, it's the first illustration of religious righteousness that Jesus paints for us here in the text. We'll see that he's going to paint the picture and he's going to use the illustration of our prayer life. He's going to use the illustration of our fasting. He's going to use the illustration of how we use uh, God's wealth or our financial resources. But the first illustration of religious righteousness that Jesus paints for us here is that of giving to the needy. Now, the noun translated needy there, when you give to the needy, that noun actually comes from the root word uh, that means mercy. If you can remember back just a couple of weeks ago in our study, we learned that God is merciful and he demonstrates his mercy in the fact that he causes the sun to rise and the rain to fall both on the righteous and on the unrighteous. And since God is merciful, since God is gracious, we, his people, are to do the same. And in doing so, we show ourselves to be sons of our Father in heaven. When we're like him, when we're like dad, we show ourselves to be like our Father who is in heaven. Well, Jesus, Jesus here obviously expects that his followers be generous givers instead of stingy hoarders. This is clearly seen in the fact that Jesus says, when you give and not if you give. Jesus expects us, his followers, to be generous givers and not hoarders. When you give, not if you give. Then he pulls back the veneer of our hearts and he says, when you give, because it's an expectation, when you show mercy, don't call attention to yourself. You see, generosity, though it's commanded by God of his people, it isn't enough. Jesus is concerned with the hidden thoughts of our hearts. Remember the word of God. It cuts down, it pierces, it divides. God knows the thoughts and the intentions of my heart. God doesn't just expect generosity, and that's it. God expects generosity, but he expects it to be accompanied by right, hidden thoughts of the heart. Motives. Motives. And so he gives us an illustration here. He gives us a picture of wrong motives, that of the Pharisees. He says, sound no trumpet before you. Just another way of saying, don't call attention to yourself. The heart is subtle. The heart loves to call attention to ourselves. We do it in numerous varied ways. The illustration that Jesus paints here is that of sounding the trumpet. Now, it's debated whether this was actually a practice that took place in Jesus' day or if Jesus is just using this as a way to illustrate his point. Some commentators note that trumpets were blown as a signal of prayer time and fasting, which we'll see here in the coming weeks. Uh, And and that that would have been a signal, though, because in that time of prayer and in that time of fasting, giving would have been a part of that worship time. And so that trumpet that was to signal fasting and prayer would have been a loud and clear, audible signal to the needy to come rushing to the temple, with which you can almost picture in your minds here the Pharisees, you know, uh, elbowing their way through the the small, crowded city streets, you know, big giver coming here, you know, everyone look out, uh, you know, make way while I put my offering in. It's kind of the picture that we have here. And we grin and we giggle because we think we're not fighting to give our gifts in the offering boxes here at the chapel, but our hearts are just as wicked. And we need a Savior just the same. In any case, when the trumpet blew, at which time the trumpet blew, in this worship service, the needy would assemble 
And this afforded a very fine opportunity for the Pharisees to let others see their good works. This is where we get the, the expression, to toot your own horn, by the way. You know, a lot of our expressions have biblical roots. This is where we get the expression, to toot your own horn. Jesus says, don't do it. When you're tempted to, don't do it. See, Jesus told the Pharisees that when they gave in this manner, when they gave tooting their own horns, they had received their reward in full. Well, what was their reward? What was it that they were after? Jesus, who knows the thoughts, intentions, and the motivations of our hearts, says that they did it to be seen by others for the glory of men. And as a result, that was their reward. Spurgeon once said, to stand with a penny in one hand and a trumpet in the other hand, that is the epitome of hypocrisy. To stand with a penny in one hand and a trumpet in the other. That's, that is the posture of hypocrisy. Which is what Jesus calls the Pharisees here. It's interesting to note that the Greek noun hypocrite refers to an actor or a character who wears a mask and plays the part. It's a stage player. That's what the word means there. Hypocrites means to be a stage player. Figuratively, the word refers to anyone who treats the world as a stage on which he or she plays their part. And so Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites because they externally seem to act with great regard for the needs of others, but that was a pretense, it was a sham, it was a cover for the real motivation of their hearts, which was to receive the praise of man. They were just playing the part. It was a pretense. It was all a cover. seeming to be interested in the needs of others, were only interested in themselves. They were pretending to be something and someone that they weren't. Friends, we do this. We play the part. At times, we're great stage players. We can be all kinds of externally concerned about the needs of others, while on the inside, we can be eaten up with the pleasure of what others think about us. Greedy for accolades, greedy to be known and to be seen, to be thanked, to be thought well of. Again, we we have no room to poke fun of the Pharisees here uh, because we're just as guilty as they are. One of the things that I tell uh, people oftentimes when they are in my office uh, and have some questions or in a counseling meeting, I'll make the statement, listen, the the only thing that, that is different between you and me is what side of the table we're sitting on. I'm more like you than I am dislike you. We're more similar than we are dissimilar. The same thing is true with the Pharisees here, friends. We're more like them than we are dislike them. We're more similar than we are dissimilar. So lest we point a finger and say, ha, those guys got it wrong. Look at their failure. We need to have our own hearts in view here. You see, the Pharisees, and we oftentimes assume a false identity. The question before us really has less to do with what the hand is doing, and more to do with what the heart is thinking while the hand is doing it. Did you catch that? The whole issue here has really less to do with what the hand is doing and more to do with what the heart is thinking while the hand is doing what it's doing. What Jesus is drilling down to here. And then look, Jesus says, well, they receive their reward. And the, the implication here is that they receive their reward in full. Jesus tells us that if our motivation for doing the things we do is merely to garner a reputation, to be seen, to be known, to be thanked, to be congratulated, to be honored, we will get what it is that we're after, but no more. That's it. 
Payment in full. As a matter of fact, inherent in the Greek word received here is the idea of payment in full. Uh, The word there, to receive, it actually is a word that comes to us uh, from the world of commerce. And it means to settle an account by paying the bill in full and then receiving a receipt in exchange. And so what Jesus is in effect saying here is he's saying if recognition is what you sink, then temporary recognition is what you'll get paid. If the pleasure of being in the spotlight is what you seek, then temporary fanfare is all that you'll get. You see, those that seek out and receive the praise of men cannot expect a heavenly reward in addition because we've already been paid in full. If we give ourselves to loving the pleasure of men and we get it, we've already received payment in full. That's why Jesus says you will not receive a, a reward from your Father who is in heaven because he's not paying twice. Consider this. When you give for recognition, or you give hoping to be noticed, you and I really aren't giving at all. You know what we're doing? Buying. When we give to be noticed, we're not really giving at all. We're seeking to purchase something. The approval of man. We're buying. When you receive the praise of man, you're simply getting what you paid for. Having said that, let me, let me make a point here. If affirmation, or if recognition comes, despite your sincere effort to please God and to please Him alone, then I don't think we have to shun that. As a matter of fact, I would go as far as to say that 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 recognition or that affirmation is legitimate and it might actually be one of the ways that God reveals his pleasure with you. So let me rewind that. If your desire and the motivation of your heart is to please God alone and you subsequently receive affirmation or recognition or thanks or you're noticed, that's not inherently sinful and we don't have to act as if it didn't happen. Now, we have to be very careful there because we can, we can cross the line from what is righteous to what is unrighteous very quickly. We can let it go to our head, right? We can be puffed up instead of remaining humble. But if our sincere motivation is to please God and we receive affirmation and recognition, that might actually be a blessing from God. It might actually be one of the ways that God reveals his pleasure with us. In other words, just because you receive praise doesn't mean that it's wrong. The matter is, what is your motivation? What is your motivation? And that can be tangled to discern at times because our heart is deceitful. Number three, and finally, be self-forgetful. Be self-forgetful. Jesus is giving the antithesis here to tooting your own horn, to blowing your trumpet and calling attention to yourself. He tells us to be self-forgetful. Look at verses three and four. Jesus says, but when you give to the needy, again, it's not if, it's when, do not let your left hand know what the right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's talk about this phrase here, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Now, Jesus, as he often does, is using hyperbole here. He's using exaggeration to to grab our minds, to grab our attention. Because what he's saying here is very important. 
Because we know that it's a logical impossibility for your left hand not to know what your right hand is doing or your right hand not to know what your left hand is doing because both hands are connected to the same heart and mind. Okay, you'd need a lobotomy for this not to be the case. Jesus is speaking in hyperbole here. It's a logical impossibility for our hands not to know what the other is doing. Jesus isn't again saying that we should live in denial or suppress the reality of the things that we've done, nor do we have to shun or act as if people did not appreciate what we did as long as our motivation is right and our heart's in the right place. He is, on the other hand, forbidding that we congratulate ourselves for the things that we've done. That's why he says, don't let one hand know what the other is doing. Interpretation, don't congratulate yourselves. In other words, as you're giving with one hand, don't let the other one pat you on the back. Not only are we not to gloat and to tell others of what we've done, but there's a sense in which we shouldn't even tell ourselves. You say, well, that's silly. How do you, how do, you do that? Well, you don't dwell on it. You do the deed. You do the act, which is just my act of spiritual worship. I'm not Mr. Wonderful. I'm not doing anything extraordinary. I'm just doing what is commanded of me. Therefore, I'm being a humble servant. But when I do it, I'm to do it and then quickly forget about it. I'm to do it. Not mindlessly, not aimlessly, as a matter of fact, though. I think this is important. We, we do what we do as an act of spiritual worship. But then when the deed is done, we forget about it. We don't, we don't, we don't go off from there and congratulate ourselves or pat ourselves on the back. There's a sense in which we, we should be growing in, in a denial of self. Instead of being self-conscious and instead of being self-aware, we should be growing in self-forgetfulness because self-awareness very quickly moves into self-righteousness. Self-awareness very quickly moves into self-righteousness. Self-consciousness very quickly becomes self-righteousness. See, our, our aim in life should be that God is our only witness. Our aim in the Christian life should be that God is our only witness, that we live before an audience of one. Christian giving or any other Christian activity, for that matter, should be marked with self-sacrifice and self-forgetfulness, not by self-congratulation. Just as it's wrong to keep a record of wrongs, 1 Corinthians 13, 5, so it is also wrong to keep a record of rights. So Jesus says, let your giving be in secret. Now, let's deal with this for just a second here. Does this mean that it's wrong to give openly? Does it mean that it's wrong for anyone to see you give at any time, that all you're giving must be absolutely anonymous? Is Jesus saying that you cannot be seen giving? I would say no. That's not the spirit of what Jesus is saying here. There's nothing wrong with public giving as an act of worship, but there's plenty wrong with giving to impress others. Again, motives is the issue. If you're a member or a regular attender here at the chapel, you'll know that we don't pass an offering plate in our corporate worship. And that's not because there's anything wrong or inherently sinful with doing so. Instead, we've chosen to put offering receptacles in the back of the worship center wall and out in the lobby. And the reason we've done that is because as as a plate is coming down your row, we don't want people to give under compulsion. We don't want people to give wondering, I wonder what the person next to me is giving. I wonder if they're giving more than I'm giving. Or, 
I know what I'm giving this week, and it is a large, you know, whatever the motivation may be, we want, just as Scripture commands, for God's people to be cheerful givers. And so it's not that we've excluded giving as a part of our worship. Giving is a part of your spiritual act of worship. And there's nothing wrong with passing a plate, nothing inherently sinful about that. But it is a challenge at times when that plate's coming, not to have an eye on who's putting what in the plate and to think about what they're giving. And we want people to be cheerful givers. That's the reasoning behind why we do things the way that we do things here at the chapel. But there's plenty of opportunity in Scripture, plenty of times in Scripture when giving was known by others. For instance, everyone in the early church knew that Barnabas had given the income from the sale of his land. I mean, Luke writes this. There was not a needy person among them in Acts. For as many as were landowners or had houses sold them, and they brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Everyone in the early church knew about that. Jesus isn't saying here that all of our giving has to be 100% anonymous. Now, there's a great contrast here, though. The great contrast between that act of worship by Barnabas and that of Ananias and Sapphira, who tried to use their gift to make people think that they were more spiritual than they really were. And they were disciplined for it. They were disciplined for it. He says, we're to give in secret, not gloating, not that other people can see us, because, look here, our Father who sees in secret will reward us. Your Father sees. God sees. You see, the person who looks for reward, the person who calculates what is due to him or her, doesn't receive it. But the person who calculates how they might honor God receives reward, receives reward in full. Our entire life, I think we should note this, is exposed to the all-seeing eyes of God. We forget that at times, right? I think inherent in what Jesus is saying here is an awareness of the presence of God. God sees. And he not only sees our actions, but he is the one who sees down to the depths of our hearts. He knows our motives. He knows our thoughts. He knows our intentions. Your father who sees in secret. That is the realization of the unceasing presence and the all-seeing eye of God. The writer of Hebrews reminds us, Hebrews 4.13, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You see, we can wear a mask we can play charades to avoid being known or found out by others, but when it comes to God, he sees through our costume. We can play the part. We can be the hypocrite and look really spiritual to everyone else, but God sees right through the costume. He sees right through the mask if the motives are impure. He sees. He sees. He's familiar with all of our ways. The psalmist writes this, O Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and you're well acquainted with all my ways. There's no playing games with God. He sees and he sees it all. Even before a word is on my tongue, the psalmist says, Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You see, receiving praise from God it doesn't always come immediately. I mentioned that at the, at the onset. But I'll tell you this, 
It's worth waiting for. It's worth waiting for. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah writes this, From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Who acts for those who wait for him. You see, foregoing the immediate praise of men and waiting on the praise of God, it's not always easy. And the reason behind that is because our egos die hard. But they should be dying. Right? Any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. That ego should be dying. We've got to wake up every morning and crucify our flesh, put it to death, which includes our egos. Sometimes God rewards in this life, but friends, catch this. The inexpressible and incalculable joy will be on the day of days when Jesus himself stands in front of us and declares, well done, good and faithful servant. And so the question I want to leave with you this this morning, and maybe here's the sticky thought for the whole sermon. Whose well done are you after? Whose well done are you after? When it comes to your giving, that's that's what Jesus is, is illustrating here. Whose well done are you after? When it comes to your prayer life next week, whose well done? When it comes to your fasting, who's well done? When it comes to your stewardship of God's resources, who's well done are you after? Which one is more important to you? Our words and our actions, they always give us away. The question is, do we crave the temporal well done of man or do we long for the enduring well done of our Father who is in heaven, who sees and will reward us if we seek his glory? Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning just thanking you for your word which penetrates to the depths of our hearts. God, you know us. You see us. You see what is done in secret. That ought to be a great encouragement to us, but it ought to be a great motivation to us to do that which is honoring and pleasing in your sight. Lord, help us to be dying to our love for the praise of others and to be growing subsequently in a love for your thoughts of us, to be growing in a desire to be noticed by you, to be honored by you, to be affirmed by you instead. Jesus, the reason that we need the gospel is because we failed in this very area. Jesus, the reason you came to die on Calvary's cross is because every single one of us sitting in here this morning without exception has failed in this area. We all have idolatrous hearts. We all bow down at times to the, the idol of self-love, which, which reveals itself in what we think about the praise of others and how we fear when we don't get it. Lord, help us to crush that idol. May the gospel will become increasingly sweet to us. Sweeter are your words uh, than honey to our lips, Lord. Help us to see sin and our idolatry as being bitter, for which it is. Lord, we love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.